Welcome to Innovation Booster, the Hattrick podcast about health technology for more healthy years of life. In this podcast, we'll talk about everything related to research and innovation in health technology. And I am your host, Dr. Ruth Koops van Tjach. Hattrick is the health technology research and innovation cluster, born and brought to life in the Northern Netherlands. Hattrick brings together academic research, health technology and clinical practice in order to tackle the challenges faced by today's healthcare system and to speed up innovation through the interplay of knowledge, health technology and business development. In the Innovation Booster sessions, we bring together researchers, companies and medical professionals to talk about valuable themes and topics in health technology. So hello everyone, in today's episode we're going to be talking about uh, artificial intelligence in imaging, so an area of healthcare. Uh, if you're now wondering why this is a different voice than you're normally used to with this podcast, it's because I'm uh, covering uh, for Ruth today, who, who is on, um, uh, who's at a wedding in Italy. My name is Tida Kretschmer, I'm also doing the podcast in science for the University of Groningen. And I have with me here three guests who were at the Innovation Booster and have given inspiring and interesting talks. Um, I will introduce them to you. We have Peter van Ooyen, uh, who is a um, computer scientist at radiation oncology at the uh, University, Me University Medical Center Groningen, and who's also the coordinator of, machine, of the machine learning lab of DASH. Uh, DASH is the data science center in health. Hi. Hi. Nice to have you here. Um, also here with me today is Henrik Ehrenstein. He's a lecturer at Hanse University of Applied Sciences, where he teaches on uh, radiation safety and on the radiogra radiography. Is that yeah, right? Radiography, Did I yeah. understand correctly? And you're planning on combining both aspects in a, in a research project in the future. Yeah, I will be starting in September. In a PhD. Dash with at a PhD, dash. yeah. Right. Um, that's great. Good luck. Thank you. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Maybe we'll talk more about the research that you're planning. I'm hoping to. And then we have uh, Simon Dalmolen here with us today, uh, who is a lead architect for data sharing at TNO, specifically at the Data X Systems Department. Yes. Yeah, that's thank you. Right. Thank you for inviting me. Looking <laughs> yeah, forward. Yeah, thanks. Good, yes. Good to have you here. So I'm very curious. We've just heard a lot about your work um, in the Innovation Booster. So you've, you've given detailed and uh, inspiring talks on a topic that is very, very new to me. So ex apologies in advance if I'm asking what you might think are stupid questions. There are there no were, stupid questions. There are well, only stupid so, answers. So. Okay, then it's your responsibility. Yes, it is. <laughs> So, okay, so this is uh, a topic that's very far away from my own expertise. Um, so I hope you excuse if I ask questions where you think, ooh, that's something that I've just explained um, in, your, in your talks. Um, but let's just, let, let, let's maybe start with something that came up, um, came up in the questions, but also came up when I thought about this, that was an aspect that was of interest to all three of you. And that is how artificial intelligence, AI in imaging can be um, translated or can, so it, it, it seems like it's very strong on the scientific level. How can it become strong 
for the patients? How can how will it become strong to people like me? So I have no scientific in or like scientific expertise in the topic, but maybe I am the the target of the scientists. Where is the bridging? So how will we bridge the science and the application? Peter, maybe you can start with that because I what struck and maybe that maybe I misunderstood that. So maybe please do put it right. But what you said was that many tools are not approved, many are imprecise, so they are not actually that great yet. Is that well is that right? it's it's not it's not that it's um a lot of tools are not precise. Uh one of the problems that is currently with the actual impl implementation of, of uh, these kind of AI tools in, in medical practice uh, is that we are now facing a new type of regulation, which is called the medical device regulation or in short MDR. And uh, the MDR dictates certain requirements for um, yeah, devices to be used in medical practice. Uh, and a lot of the tools don't comply to that yet. So there's a lot of work to be done uh, to get everything complying to the MDR. This is not only for AI. The MDR is for everything that is used, every medical device in the hospital. Um, and medication as well, right? Because you compared it, I think, to the FDA and that's... Yeah, also medication right? also yeah. has to comply to to certain rules. And, and uh, what we've seen now with the new MDR, that software has been entered into this rules and regulations. So software right. has to be looked at far more carefully than, than was done before. And AI is also software. So we have to look at that, but AI is a particular kind of software. It's not the, the, the kind of software that we use to program. Yeah. So with a normal piece of software, we just start programming and we typing in lines and then it runs and it does something um, with AI or with deep learning, what is mostly used, um, there is a, a network that learns itself. So we put in data, we do just some configuration in that network, but we don't programming it. Yeah. And so the, the data that we put in is also part of the equation. Uh, we get the right answer out. So if I, like, let's take a concrete example. Imagine I'm at the hospital and they are working with AI, would that mean that my data, or in, in the specific case of imaging, would that mean that my MRI scan or my um, my radio, the radio, radiography picture, how yeah. is it called? Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, is entered into that system to, uh, to train, basically, to enable this to become better? Yes. To, okay. to be able to train a deep learning model, we need the data from okay. the current patients. Yes. Uh, okay. So but we, we will beforehand. not use it just as is. You have to approve the use of your data, of course. That's one of the things that we have to take care of in, in medical research, that we have uh, explicit consent of the yeah. people that the data is from to use that data. And uh, did I understand correctly that at the moment this is done on a, in a scientific, in the, like in, a, in an academic research setting, but not yet in the clinical practice? Well, not entirely. There are, there are some tools that are already entering into clinical practice and are also used in clinical practice. Um, and you see a lot of research going on both at universities, but also at companies. When you say we need to make sure so we can't just put the patient data in, we need to make sure it's good or like it has quality, it fulfills quality standards. What is what is meant by this? Can you uh, go? Can you explain this a little bit? 
more in detail. So how, like, okay, maybe we stayed with my example. So I'm, mm -hmm. at the, I'm in a hospital. I have an MRI scan done. This is being loaded into the system. What happens next or what should happen next? Yes, Simon? Well, for example, and when, when you're saying, well, patient-centered, a lot of organizations and hospitals say, well, we're patient-centered, but it's especially about the, the primary process. So, for example, for breast cancer, you, you're first starting at, at the doctor in the local village, and then you get a, yeah. get a letter, and then you can go to the hospital. And then the whole primary process of see if a, if, a, if a female has a breast cancer or not is actually starting. But also for using artificial intelligence, you would like to use the data for a second time. So it's called secondary use of data. And so an AI algorithm can learn of 100 or maybe 1,000 uh, persons who per, uh, perhaps could have breast cancer and you could use those, uh, those images for learning an algorithm. And that's only for the learning part. So that's the first phase. An algorithm should be trained because an algorithm by itself is stupid. Uh, but if you train it, so-called, same as, as a person is going for the Olympics, also need to train. And that's also for an, for an algorithm in such a sense. And after you train that algorithm, then it can finally do its job. For example, for classification, if a person has breast cancer or not. So also going back to your question, patient-centered in that sense, how can AI algorithm be really beneficial? I think the first part is, is doing a better uh, diagnose, for example, and just uh, get better quality of diagnose, perhaps speed up the diagnose process. But also, if you have a better diagnose, you can also uh, could check if AI could be beneficial for, for better treatment itself, for the treatment plan. However, a lot of people are saying, well, we're afraid of AI, uh, but I think you need to make also make a distinction in that sense that AI won't go rule the world uh, immediately, maybe in the near future, who, who, who knows? But I think the most important thing is that I, AI can be uh, used for making better decisions. So the doctor is still in control, but AI can be used beneficially for that. Yeah, I think you have to see it as a, so AI in a lot of uh, cases where it is applied now is as a kind of second read. So there is a medical specialist still checking the data uh, or checking the result of the AI, but it's it's not something that is working on its own at yep. this moment. You also have to keep in mind that, uh, like Simon uh, mentioned, uh, it is very specific to a task. So it's a one-trick pony. It it uh, one deep learning algorithm knows how to do one very specific yes, task that's... very well, but yeah. it's not a generic thing that can solve any question yeah not yet not yet but it's going to be a long time until we are there yeah hmm. okay i want to go back to uh, one more thing because i want to actually see where you come in hendrik with the annotation at what moment in this process is this is this um well is this the task so the annotation is this part of the quality improvement or is this part of making it usable to begin with or yeah, and, and, and can you just quickly explain to the listener what an annotation yes, is <laughs> i got you there uh well an annotation is basically a term to uh refer to the gold standard, the ground truth of what you are looking for. So for instance, if we are trying to diagnose uh, chest x-rays, we want to know what the original chest image contains. Does it contain a pneumothorax, uh, an enlarged heart? Does it contain a, a lung tumor? Um, uh, so we want to know what the ground truth is there. Mom, uh, just, to, just to interrupt, the ground truth is that the baseline patient, yeah, so what, to say, what the radio uh, radiologist yes. saw as a diagnosis. 
Ah, okay. So that ah, is yes. the ground truth, and that is the annotation. So the person is the ground truth. Yeah, 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 and that's what we accept as a ground truth, even though people make errors as well. But yes. we might have to go back to that in a bit. <laughs> um, and in order to train an artificial intelligence for a diagnosis session, you have to have the original image and tell it what, what it, it does is. contain. So the ground truth, right, and that's okay. what we refer to as an annotation. Okay, and that is, Simon, what you said, all these people who went to the doctors for breast breast cancer, someone has to tell whether that image is a cancer or like yeah, you, have, you, have, you have to classify or not. if it's a positive or a negative case right. in that sense. And that's actually how you train the algorithm. The right. algorithm by itself is stupid. Most of the algorithms are up to one task. For example, for classification, breast cancer, yes or no. Um, but you need to train it, and like, like right. a human being, like a human being regarding sports, you also have to train it, and also for for the for the algorithm. So, the better the, the the algorithm can be trained on better quality of data. So, if you have annotated data really well, or you have a high quality of data, yeah, then you can train way way better. And more data, I yeah. suppose, as well. Okay. Yeah. So right. it's it's really learning by experience. Yeah, but in a way, the algorithm is learning through the humans. Yeah. And through many, many good human or like well, um, good uh, evaluation by humans, it's getting better. Yeah, you can compare. It's easy to to visualize that when you look at something that a lot of people do in their daily life. If you have a Gmail account, uh, it suggests you what is spam. Yes, and you can say no, this is not spam, and you can also say oh, this mail is spam. When you're doing that, you're giving input to their algorithm. So their algorithm will get more knowledge because you are, as a human being, identifying what you think is spam or not. Right. And that improves their algorithm and makes that the, the, the predictions that they make on spam is going to become better over time. And we do exactly the same, but we have to use the input of a specialist that can analyze the imaging data that we have. And that is used to improve our algorithm. So it's, it's exactly the same way. So it stands or falls with the people who are rate, who are doing the rating in the first place, actually. You How need, good the yes, you need to have domain yeah. experts. And that's also yes. why it makes it really trickier or a multidisciplinary uh, approach. You need technical people. You need people with the real medical skills. So it's it's a really big, uh, big bunch of, of, yeah. of knowledge what you need. And that's, I think, also really... Uh, really hard or to to make use of it uh, to make the most benefits out of AI for example and also I think on the research perspective we see a lot of benefits already but taking the next steps from the innovation funnel okay we have a great algorithm that can do a trick towards a real implementation with legal stuff in place uh, how is the algorithm being trained is it a no, yes or a no bias in it and all the other stuff that's a lot of hurdles yeah. to, 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 to take uh, to be honest <laughs> Can I ask, to, uh, like, what would be the legal, the legal stuff you're referring to? Is that, for instance, privacy, um, patient data to be yeah, used yeah, for? Yeah, yeah, be because yeah, if mm -hmm. you would like to use data for a second time, because that's actually what you most of the time do with uh, with an AI algorithm. Well, we have to be aware that you do not harm people. For example, uh, uh, data could be anonymized, but how do you for sure that it's anonymized? You're not always sure because for specific rare types of cancer. The data set is too small. Uh, so there's all kinds of things in place uh, from, a, from a legal perspective. Also, if you would like to share the data or even the annotated data or the uh, metadata uh, amongst the hospitals, for example, yeah, uh, uh, you have to have some legal stuff in place because what if you have a data leakage, for example? But that sounds um, 
the the meaningful thing to do, right? To pool the data, to have the biggest possible data set on which to train. In theory, the you're right, to have yeah. one central database and then you could train the algorithm yes. the best effort. However, there's some risk, and I think Peter can also uh, apply on that. But that's also why uh, there are in AI algorithms uh, uh, several types of uh, uh, algorithms available. Uh, today, uh, Peter and I presented something re regarding federated learning. Yeah. So you're can not you having explain? a centralized uh, database, but actually all the or several hospitals have their own data of uh, rare types of cancer, a rare type of cancer, for example, and you have have one algorithm who's actually visiting the hospitals. It's only visiting the data, learn from the local data and having the learned uh, classification or configuration and taking it to the next hospital, for example. And in the, uh, in the end, uh, the, the algorithm learned from maybe five to 10 hospitals has a way better classification algorithm because it's better trained and well, a bit more equipped for the, for the, for the situation uh, in that sense. So that's where you can say, okay, you, the data is still at, at, a, at, a, at, at its own place at the hospital. Uh, and only the algorithm is visiting the data and is not using the data in a, in a, uh, in a disadvantaged uh, manner. But maybe and Peter can elaborate on that. Yeah, I think one of the things that we uh, that you should be aware of also is that um, in a lot of cases, the deep learning networks are not really well generalizable. So when we develop something within our own institute, um, we train it on our data, we test it on our data, we validate it on our data, and it performs well. There is no guarantee that it will also work on the data of another hospital. How is that possible? Like, what, what, how would the data need to look different for this to not be <laughs> then? Well, the data well? is different because, uh, for example, we can have a, a, uh, a scanner, a CT or an MR from yeah. a certain vendor. And another hospital has another vendor and the images that come out of it are subtly different. So there are some differences in the way they are presented or maybe there are differences in the protocol that we use locally. So we can have a different uh, thickness of the slices. So the, the, the accuracy of the, the imaging data itself or there are all kinds of parameters that play a role that determine the quality of that data set. And if you train on one data set, then you are also biased towards that, that data yes. set. And to avoid that bias, you should at least validate with data from other hospitals. But if you use what, what Simon just said, the, the federated way, then you are already doing that. So you're in your training already. So you're using data from different centers and that might even out that bias a little bit and give you a more yep. generalizable uh, result. And that is something that's already happening in the Netherlands. So you have the algorithm that's visiting the hospitals and is collecting the data. It becomes more available. However, there are still a lot of things that needs to be done, especially on a legal part. Right. And also, uh, like uh, like uh, Peter was, was uh, mentioning, the data format should be the same. So the semantics should be the same. Because uh, to, to give a, a real world, a world example, a lot of Dutch people always asking, how, how much money do you earn? And then you say uh, 5,000, for example, but is it per four weeks, per month? Yeah. Is it on an annual base? It's the same for breast cancer images, for example. What type of image is it in and in what conditions? And what is the, the format for, for exchange, the, the, the file format for exchanging, for example? So all these things you also have on, uh, on IT level. And is this something that will be on a national level or do you think uh, the future will also have this? See, like, will the algorithm also go to Belgium, to Germany? 
there are already initiatives for yeah. European That's uh, great. Yeah. frameworks and other stuff. Yeah. Um, but uh, but still, a lot of work has to be done, and I think mostly on on the coordination. To be honest, uh, aren't there a lot of vendors already, like Siemens, who uh, have an European approach to uh, AI implementation, gathering I th- I data, so. sharing so. data? For their own systems, yeah, no, by the way. So that's a drawback, but still interesting. Great. Yeah, yes. but there are also uh, larger projects, of course, in the uh, the scientific projects that are run nowadays. Uh, a lot of them are also international. So then you are already collecting international data. Only, in consortia. And yeah, only the, the, yeah. if you want to get all that data together into mm. one uh, uh, into one environment to be able to train on it then uh, in europe it's a little bit the same but still there are some differences between different countries and what is allowed and what not and legal difference legal difference in privacy and yeah and especially when you go broader yes in the us it's totally different than in china yeah uh, or in europe or in japan so if you want to do that then it's we've also done experiments on a uh, on a global level yeah. also with that federated learning because then you you can s- try to yeah n- not having to deal with all those differences but you can just train your algorithm at the place where the data is is that because uh, the the legal problem would be to send the data patient yeah. data outside of yeah. europe yeah and also the consent for example yeah. because uh, uh, you need to guarantee that it's anonymized data, but you also need to co- have, have the consent sometimes of the patient uh, and, and also sometimes from the hospital. Yeah. You also need to be aware that, that the data is used on a, uh, a proper way and it's not being misused and a lot of implications because if you have a, a data leakage, yeah, that has a, has a high impact, of course. A word from our sponsor, ODA, Open Diagnostics Ecosystem. One of the goals of Hattrick, the Life Cooperative and ODE is to encourage and support medical technology innovations from bench to bed. The ODE Open Diagnostics ecosystem is happy to help Hattrick to reach a wider audience with their interesting innovation boosters by this valuable podcast. In the Life Cooperative, 45 companies and startups from life sciences and medtech in the north of the Netherlands work together in innovative projects from medicine and diagnostics to medical technology. The ODE Open Diagnosis ecosystem offers access to a network of companies, knowledge institutions, healthcare partners and open innovation facilities that use their knowledge and abilities to develop new techniques for making medical diagnosis. The goal of ODE is to turn the north of the Netherlands into a global expert in the development of innovative diagnostics. Want to know more? Have a look at opendiagnostics.nl. Yeah. So it's very interesting. And that's actually the t- second topic that I want to discuss. Um, that you talked about uh, global, uh, that there are uh, col- con- or experiments on the global level. Because what I was thinking, if this... If the algorithm is trained on a narrow patient type, so to say, um, or on an area of white, maybe maybe male or maybe only female, to what extent is it then usable in a global, in a more global, so or to what not even in a global context, but to what extent will it identify, for instance, disease in a in a very small proportion of the population? It will not be usable if you only train it on white males. 
because uh, we have a very specific body type, uh, yes. uh, the shape of our lungs, for instance, uh, in relation to um, males from Asia or the United States, even though they are white males uh, in the United States, they have another body posture than we have. So it's very hard to generalize that. And uh, the, the publication I have read in the last couple of years also show that uh, even you want to find a balance between males and females, for instance. And um, even if you balance it out like 50-50, you might uh, expect that it will function as proper for males as females. It does still have a uh, gender uh, imbalance in it. So it does function worse for males or females. Why is that? And uh, I think there are, if I understand this correctly, there are two um, possibilities for bias. One is the rater. Right, so the person who is right, who is kind of saying this is breast cancer, yes or no? Yeah, the reader, yeah, um, or the reader, yeah. uh, and the, and and from whom is the picture? So, is, are the images from only white women, or are they, are they also from uh, from other um, from other groups? Basically, yeah, sorry, the data and the readers I can think be biased. The, I suppose the, the problem is that that we have a um, when we are acquiring data, there is a whole. Uh, sequence going on so we have the patient you have the machine that the machine that the images are taken on we have the the processing that is done we also have the the, the population that is that the patient comes from yes. so and every part of that is a possible cause of bias yes. so is that in any way accounted for already yeah that's very difficult yes so it it is something we we have to keep in, we have to take into account whenever we are training a network that there are possible biases and we have to see if we can somehow yeah, avoid them. Um, like Hendrik already said, it, it's very difficult to do that and to, to actually make something that is generalizable is, is a big challenge. Uh, that's also why validation is, is very important uh, also when you start using tools in clinical practice. That's also partly where that medical device regulation is for. That when you start using something in your own hospital, that you do a validation to see if it also works in your hospital and that it's the right tool for you to use in your population, in your situation, in your type of environment. Which is relatively easy to do for a large healthcare center as the UMCG. However, the more smaller hospitals, it's harder to do, especially yeah. with the, the less occurring diseases. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I was also thinking, yeah, things like consent to secondary use, for instance, might also be biased, right? So who is who is giving the consent that yeah. might also reflect yeah. one uh, one segment of the of the population? Yeah, true, instance. true. And but uh, regarding consent itself, I think also the the, the government has so a role in the sense. Okay, how should the governance be regarding consent? But still, some hospitals are more cooperative or more innovative to already right. take so have some extra projects or money available for specific types. In in, in this case, cancer yeah, for for doing re cancer research. So yeah, then it, in theory you could have a biased uh, data set, for example. So it's all about uh, the, the the data pre-processing in that sense, uh, and also it always comes back to the data quality. Uh, so so how was the quality of the data? Is it complete? Is it correct? Uh, but also the meta description of the data. The, 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 did we have uh, some specific uh, uh, biases or some specific uh, types or uh, at the data, for example? Yeah. 
we've talked a lot about challenges now. What are the biggest promises? So where, well, in an ideal world, how do we use AI in imaging maybe, or maybe even larger in healthcare, if all goes well? <laughs> if all, all goes like the most optimistic way, the most optimal way. Optimal is, I think, is very subjective. Because uh, on one side, you can say, well, the, the, the pressure on healthcare is increasing, especially in, over the next couple of decades, like we've seen in reports. I think it was seven in 10 or eight in 10, uh, the people in Holland should work in healthcare to keep it running. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So on one side, you might say, well, the most generic uh, diagnostics you can uh, process automatically. And until now, we have been talking about AI as a diagnostic tool to read the x-rays, yeah. to read the scans. Uh, however, AI has been implemented in order to acquire the images as well. And I'm, I'm treading on thin ice here because I'm a radiographer <laughs> by trade, but um, acquiring an image uh, to a certain degree is, is relatively easy. Chest images, uh, I can teach a lot of people to do in uh, roughly half a day. I'm I'm really dumbing it down here, by the way, because there's a lot more going on there. But it's a procedure you can uh, make automatic. You can go into the hospital, read to your card. To take the picture. Yeah, yeah. and uh, read your card, follow the TV route, and uh, step into the room, get digital instructions on how to uh, undress, take the image, go home with your diagnosis yeah. in hand. And I think there's something to say there. However, we will lose the human side of healthcare in, in that small process. But you're like, you know, I was, I've just been thinking a few years back, nobody would imagine that we pay, that we scan our own shopping and pay for it and nobody would steal yeah, it's, it's on normal. a large it's, scale. It's so going why incredibly fast. Right? So I think this is a paradigm shift, which, yeah. which should be discussable. Yeah. And... Is there research? Do people want that? Is that something that the, that society uh, is, is looking the for? The moment I throw this up, no one wants it. But <laughs> <laughs> given the increase in pressure, yeah. I think this might be a, a sub-solution. I think this is one of the reasons why we uh, in, in Groningen now have a an ELSA lab. Yeah. Uh, where we look Can you at, explain what that is, an ELSA lab? Uh, the ELSA lab is, is looking at ethical, legal, and societal aspects of artificial intelligence. Um. So important is also there the societal part. So in that ELSA lab, we don't just have the, the technical experts involved and the clinical experts, but also the patients. Um, so I think that should be an open discussion. And, and part of it is, is educating people, letting them know what it is, what it's about. Uh, what is AI? How is it used? And if you take the example that, that Hendrik gave, yeah, maybe that's the only way to keep it feasible. Yeah. Well, like he already said, the, the, the healthcare system as we have now is yeah, basically, we cannot keep it up this way with the same quality and the same same quantity yeah. that we that we have. So in that, those kind of tools are needed. Also, when you look at early detection programs where we want to do screening, um, more and more screening programs or, or screening IDs are coming up. Those are generating not only data for patients. No, they are generating data of the population of a certain category. Yeah. But that's such an amount of data that it will be impossible to process. Yeah. So you have to have automated tools to, for example, rule <laughs> yeah. out disease and say, that if the algorithm can only say for sure that a certain percentage does not have any disease, 
that would already save a lot of time because they don't have to be looked at. Only the ones that the that the algorithm is not sure of should then be checked. Yeah, are there already procedures in healthcare where all this is already reality that that listeners or that I might not be thinking of right now? <coughs> Uh, well, the UMCG is implementing machine learning, uh, well, AI, a subsection of AI for the planning of radiation therapy uh, procedures. So that's something I think is very interesting. It's working very good, if I'm understanding correctly. Um, and that's the discussion point there. We are letting go and heading it over to the machine. Uh, and people are... Suspicious? Yeah, people are suspicious in letting go and handing it over to the machine. But um, it, it performs better yes. and way faster, way faster. So that's a very big increase in sufficiency, efficiency, yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah. and you have to keep in mind that, that what the, uh, the MDR and also the GDPR still require is the human oversight. Yeah. So there is still a human being that's yeah. checking if it's... Correct. Yeah. And we also have to take into account the primary process, for example, from a patient who started diagnosed at, the, at, the, at his own doctor towards the hospital. And it's a really complex process with a patchwork of things to do. And if you then follow the money in that sense, okay, when does someone get paid or whatsoever, it's, it's also really challenging. I think a lot of AI, and, and, and today we're discussing about uh, using AI on imaging, from a universal perspective or on a research perspective, I think a lot of things are available, but because it's a really complex and it requires multidisciplinary uh, team actually, uh, and and some people have uh, have cold feet. But what you also see is that also the digital skills on C level are not always available. So if you have them on management level, on the top management level, also have the digital skills available and doing really uh, 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 risk mitigation. Okay, what if we're going to use AI on imaging, for example, and if we're really going to do it, uh, yeah, that that I think would be next next thing. Also, uh, really helpful. I'm not saying that everyone is uh, does not have all the digital skills, but you also see cold feet because no one would like to have a legal process uh, no. uh, on it. So there was also something because in your talk you said, or maybe when someone asked a question, you said it was about consent. I think, um, <clears throat> and I think you said. Uh, it might it might be the case that an algorithm does harm and then you want to revoke your consent. Yep. And I was wondering, like, is that reality or is this something that that you have in your nightmares? And a little bit related to that, <laughs> already as a preparation, who will take responsibility for this? Who will the developer? Do you have a few doctor? days? Do you have a few days? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is I can recommend a Netflix series, Black yes. Mirror, Black <laughs> Mirror, and you see the, the nightmare. No, no, but 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 what you now also see within, uh, especially within the Netherlands, uh, you also see that the Dutch government is going to to so-called PGOs, so uh, so what called patient vo patient faults, and that you as a patient can see where your data is actually being used. So that's oh, yeah. That's the direction that we're going. If that whole thing is in place on a correct and, and ethical manner, uh, then it could also speed up the use of AI, for example, because then uh, the patients itself are better informed or more informed what is actually being done with your data. Because for now, I'm also a person, I'm having a health insurance, but I don't know why, why which data the health insurance is actually using. Yeah. Also, uh, with the, 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 the social uh, thing regarding the taxes, uh, for example, and the toeslagen affaire. Yeah, also, a lot of discussion was about AI algorithms and the whole multidisciplinary team behind it. 
So yeah, there are, we have steps to make. It's not only on health. For example, if you go to uh, logistics or because now a lot of people order their groceries online, it's all about AI. It's just solving the traveling salesman problem constantly. And everyone is accepting it because I would like to have my groceries at nine o'clock. Yeah. Then we accept it. However, when we're having a discussion about a better treatment of your of your own uh, uh, breast cancer or maybe uh, future uh, patients, yeah, then we're doing really hesitant. So uh, I think we also have to take next steps from that part also. Who is responsible for that? So because that sounds like it should be social scientists, behavioral scientists who do some sort of translation, who do some, or like science communications. It sounds like um, people uh, need to be... And need to be need to lose their suspicion a little bit, or need to become a little bit more uh, trusting in the possibilities. Yeah, part of it is is education. I think yeah. part of it is knowing uh, what it is about and how it is used, and and that's communication and and, and education um, that has to be done about the, the use of AI in in healthcare. And do you think not enough is being done in that regard? Uh, I Yet. think, uh, well, you, you can always do more. So yeah. <laughs> if it's enough, that's always a difficult question. Um, as long as there are people that are, uh, are, um, are not educated, then we're not doing enough. Yeah. I think uh, this so, is a good moment to remind the reader of your MOOC. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, well, that's we, one we of the steps that, that we took is uh, we uh, from from the UMCG together with um, uh, European partners, um, we made a massive open online course yeah. uh, on on the FutureLearn platform, um, where we discussed the 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 possibilities of AI, but also the risks of AI in healthcare. Uh, also look at those ethical and legal aspects and, and explain how the pro the process is of um, AI being introduced into a hospital, what kind of things are, are coming into play then? Yeah. Um, so with that, we try to both educate uh, healthcare professionals, but also the general public. Yeah. They can also just go to FutureLearn. Yeah. If you search for University of Groningen there, you can find it easily. Yes, because healthcare is really something all of us are patients at some point, right? Or all of us are yes. kind of like on the receiving end at some point. So this is, so I can tell you, I live in such a small village. I can't order groceries. So this is not affecting me. <laughs> Same <laughs> every year. <laughs> yeah, but, but also. Well, but probably you're doing, uh, you're going to, to one of the big platforms online to, you know to, what? I to don't. order stuff. I don't. I don't. And then you <laughs> get all those suggestions. So you, you bought this. Maybe Maybe you also like this. That's also AI. That's true. Yes. That's also yes. what I find really contradicting now and then as a, as a person, because when you take into account your friends or family, everyone is using WhatsApp and uh, Snapchat, TikTok. It's all about freemium model, and you as a person are the model where it is being used. And and regarding patient, uh, yeah, when you're a patient, we're we're now and then really uh, uh, anxious in everything and. It, it, I'm not. That's also what I mean with the digital skills. That also uh, in the broader scale, we're not always aware of what we're already doing, and on the other hand, we are really afraid mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. I think we should have a broader debate, uh, a social debate. Okay, what is the impact of the whole freemium model of the big tech, and how can, for example, if you share your con if you give consent to specific research on on imaging or on on on, on other medical stuff, 
that it could be really beneficial also for others. So you're not doing it only for yourself, but also for others. Uh, and you can benefit also from it. Because yep. on the other hand, we're giving everything free away. Uh, yep. We put on, on WhatsApp, whatever, and they can do it. They're actually using it for all kinds of AI algorithms on the other hand. So yeah. Even, yeah, the same goes for the, the implementation of the COVID uh, screening app, which a lot of people were hesitant about, even though they were using WhatsApp and well, basically yep. feeding Facebook to be... Putting it bluntly, yeah, uh, this this is a societal thing. I think should have a position in education, and yeah, and I think the patient um, uh, organizations also play an important role in this. Yeah, because I'm sometimes afraid that um, the discussion is is done by people that are n not patients at yeah. that moment. And they are the ones that are going to go into the discussion, take the decisions, etc. And I, I've talked to patient representatives, and they say, "Please use my data." So when you talk to patient groups, they are way more um, more open to they're, they're more open to the data yeah. sharing because they know what it is yeah. to come to yeah. the next hospital yeah. and having to explain everything again yes. uh, because the data is not there. Yep. But I also, so, also have to be honest, we're also making steps within the Netherlands, but also within Europe. Uh, first of all, getting more aware of the topic of digital sovereignty, in a sense, being yep. in control, being aware of it, uh, and also having now the the digital, uh, what is it, digital government act or the digital act regarding uh, uh, the big tech, and to, to be a bit more aware of it and also a bit more helpful. But also on the other hand, you also see that new legislation can be really painful. For example, the GDPR and the right to be forgotten now and then. But when I go to the local tennis club and I would like to be in a newsletter, I have to give consent. And I yeah. say, okay, well, now it's getting a wrong, wrong yeah. direction, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. Okay, so we discussed the two main topics that I really want to talk about, the bridging and the ethical implications. Um, and I think this is a good note to end on this uh, call for maybe more interdisciplinary uh, collaboration to increase and improve communica science communication and education on this topic, um, as well as collaboration between science, business and practice to increase trust and um, decrease the suspiciousness. Is there anything else that you still want to share? So we've already uh, advertised the book again. <laughs> Are there any other things that we want to take the take a moment to advertise? You can also put things in the show notes, of course. And if there's nothing, then I thank you very much for staying to uh, to do this podcast together. Uh, I'm sure it's not only of value to the people who've come to the Innovation Booster, but also, um, yeah, a worth worthwhile uh, listening experience to anyone else thanks a lot <laughs>